Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. Actually, today, uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, but I'll be guest hosting uh, in the Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness podcast. In order to host our guest today, uh, Laura Atmadarshan Santoro, uh, on her brand new translation of a little text called uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Atmadarshan, do you prefer Laura or Atmadarshan? When I talk about works like this, I prefer Atma Darshan, although I respond well to either. All right. Well, Atma Darshan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's our pleasure. So tell us a little bit about, um, um, first of all, actually, let's talk about the fact that this book is self-published, because I imagine there'll be many listeners who are curious about that process. You know, what was that like for you? It was a very different process because I've had works published before. I was published in psychiatry. Uh, I had a martial arts book that was internationally published, but that was some time ago. And uh, I thought I could kind of bring the same strategy I did to those, to this particular book. But the publishing world has changed quite a bit. I remember when I was working on the book, I was looking for some advice from other authors. And one was, you know, focus on the book, tune out all the distractions like social media. So I did that. Um, Then when it was ready and I was sending it off to various publishers, what I notice nowadays is uh, one of the first things they asked is, how are you doing on social media? And I thought, whoops. It was tough also because unlike some of the other topics I'd published about, Bhagavad Gita has been around for some time and many very prominent people have produced works on it. And I think one of the impressions I got is many editors felt that the field was already kind of flooded with different interpretations and what new could anybody have to say. Uh, However, I had made a promise to myself and to some of the students that had helped me um, kind of put this together that it was going to be published. I told them, even if I have to sit down and write it out by hand and copy it over and over and send the paper to you, it's going to get published. So I thought, you know, uh, if nobody's willing to bite from a traditional publishing house, I'm going to go the self-publishing route. And that was very educational, it gave me another glimpse into the publishing world. And in some ways it was nice because I had more control over what the book would look like, how it was laid out, and exactly what it would contain. Thank you for sharing that perspective with us. Um, now I imagine uh, the vast majority of our, our, our audience, be it Indian religions or certainly spiritual practice and mindfulness, uh, would mm-hmm. be somewhat familiar with the Bhagavad Gita. Um, uh, just, uh, very, 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 very briefly, that's this important philosophical work from ancient India that's uh, sort of 
part of the greater Mahabharata, but self-circulating in these 18 chapters, uh, this epic conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, where uh, Arjuna receives not only pragmatic counsel on how to get up and do his duty as a warrior, but receives all sorts of spiritual teaching. So I imagine the vast majority of the audience would be somewhat familiar with the Bhagavad Gita. Um, so tell us, uh, in response to the, 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 to the objecting potential publisher, what would we say? You know, what is it that you're bringing that's new to the, this enterprise? Well, one of the first things I think that's different is it is an English translation in the same original Sanskrit meter. And that's something I had been looking for myself. And one of the reasons I thought about putting this book together is I couldn't find one at the time when I started writing this book. Now, I know that there's at least one other one out there at this point. That was one of the things that for me differentiated it. It helps people approach this as a poem. People who are not familiar with the Sanskrit, that are familiar with English, they can read it and catch some of its beauty, I think, in that way. And then one other of the chief ways I believe it's different is the idea of how is it going to apply to modern Western readers uh, who may not have any familiarity with the text. And I purposefully tried to live each of the verses. So I would translate a verse at a time. And then I would try to live that verse. And that was very helpful because, as you know, as many of our listeners know, I'm sure each Sanskrit word has a bunch of different nuances. And that's why there are so many commentaries. People are debating, well, it means this. No, it's this nuance. No, it's this. And what I tried to do is live each verse for at least one day and then take the insights that gave me. And I found it really helpful in both sorting out some of the verses that seemed almost incomprehensible at first when you read it, you're like, what exactly does that mean? But also I found it really gave me um, leverage with people who would say, well, I don't need to read that. Why do I need to read this in a yoga teacher training now? What does it have to do with yoga? What does it have to do with teaching? What does it have to do with uh, anything right now in this modern world? And I could say, look, this particular verse, and this is what did for me when I lived it, and it's still just as applicable. I think that uh, lived experience really gave it a bit more credibility. And so would you say that... Um... Uh, so if I asked, uh, uh, I don't want to ask a leading question, but what has informed the translation? Uh, were there uh, uh, teachings from others, other translations, uh, people you studied with, your own uh, sadhana? And what informs the ways? And I mean, uh, clearly, you know, really, um, one thing that's difficult for folks to grasp unless they take a look at Sanskrit is there is no translating from Sanskrit to English or vice versa. There's only rendering. You're only ever rendering exactly. as soon as you as soon as you go beyond a particular finite, you know, you know, um, you know, Deva Datta walked to the forest or, 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 right. or, or what have you, or translating dog or something like that. Beyond that, the minute you have a verse, there is no translating. You know, I, I do this, um, I do this, uh, this thing on Wednesdays, it's called Wisdom Wednesday, where we just look at the Bhagavad Gita to facilitate understanding, at least for myself, if not anybody else who shows up. <laughs> but, um, but uh, we literally look at, four or five different translations before I begin mm -hmm. exegesis, because just to give, for those who aren't Sanskritists, just to give a sense of the decisions and that are made, uh, need to be made. And so what informs the ways in which you 
translate these verses? Well, like you with your Wisdom Wednesdays, uh, one thing I did with my translation is look at at least four or five different authors and how they approached it. And it wasn't just different authors, but also uh, their different styles. For example, I looked at Swami Shivananda, and he, to me, has a bit more of a Gnan approach where he's very precise and he talks about the meaning and he goes back to the history as opposed to like Uknat Yaswaran, who is definitely more of a Bhakti yoga approach and the devotion. So I was trying to look at all these different takes on it and see how, oh yes, how one's filters really can impact the rendering. And when you mentioned the rendering, I uh, spoke with someone who translated Christian scripture from the original languages. And he said basically the same thing. He said, you can't do it word for word because that's one of the things I was trying to do is be really literal. And he said, you can't do that. You have to um, get to the underlying sentiment and understand the turns of phrase and um, how the language was used back then and what certain things meant back then, as opposed to what they mean now. And then um, another approach I used also is actually traveling to India to listen to the group chanting, to participate in the group chanting, to hear people from that subcontinent talk about what it means to them, and also to find people in this country and then on other continents who had great experience with it and listen to each of those takes. And wow, I think that was very instrumental in me finding confidence that I too could provide something of value because um, the Gita is, is able to pull out, I think, the best of each person that reads it. And each time you read it, you're a different person. And each time something new and different is pulled out. Would you say that your translation um, uh, sort of engages or, or engages, illumines, um, augments uh, sort of traditional exegesis? Or would you say that your translation more so has an eye to a modern audience and modern uh, uh, relevant adaptation within the, the modern Western context? Or how would you position the translation between those two poles, would you say? I think I'm definitely toward the modern um, and definitely more of a modern Western mindset. And the reason I focused on that is because that's who I generally teach. And there's that lack of background, you know, the lack of a cultural understanding that when people come to this work, they don't have that, you know, that um, that perhaps assumed understanding that many people would think you'd have when they start talking to you or writing about the Gita. And one of the ways I really wanted to do that was by helping people to understand the stories behind the Gita, because the Gita is wonderful, but it's part of this wonderful work. And if you just take it out and you don't have any understanding of the broader context, you miss so much. I know the first time I read it, I remember after chapter one going, why? Why in the world do they have us read this thing? It has no application to my modern life. And once I started reading the Mahabharata, then it all started falling into place. So my hope was 
to inspire people who might otherwise think this has nothing to offer me to realize it has so much to offer you. Even now, even though it seems to have been written strictly for people thousands of years ago to apply to those situations, it still works for you. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, if we take our cue from the the narrative world, the world within the text, and without mm-hmm. question, I, w- I would agree without question. I mean, perhaps some somewhat bias insofar as I'm a scholar of Sanskrit narrative, but mm-hmm. either way, long before mm-hmm. Sanskrit narrative, I was uh, I loved English literature. That was my first um, major, actually, and so mm-hmm. the, the 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 the. the, the I, I would I would agree with that question. Not that I need to agree with any of my guests, but I would agree with that question that that um, that it is uh, uh, necessary, useful, and fruitful to take one's cue from the narrative context, even when engaging uh, the stringently philosophical dimensions of the text. What we would think of as philosophical, because what the narrative does is it shows us the philosophy in action, in context in an embodied way it seems to my mind anyhow and um um and and you know is is the gita for uh the ancient indic world the modern indic world the modern western world well on one level the gita is for anybody who's stuck between a rock and a hard place or is trying to navigate the spiritual and the material at the same time or who realizes that there is you know Sometimes the path, the, the 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 road forward is just the, the lesser of the two or two, three or four evils, and you know how does one navigate that? And so, I think, um, would you agree that that might be some of the draw of the Gita, or how would you how would you characterize the, the draw or the applicability of the Gita in modern times? Well, I think one of the things you just said was. Um totally relevant that how do you choose between apparently the lesser of the two evils because one thing I've noticed in modern Western storytelling is there a tendency for black and white like if you watch Star Wars the villain is definitely in black and the hero is definitely wearing white and there's just huge divide between the two and what we find out is we really interact with the world is there are lots of shades of gray And I think one of the benefits of the Gita is it can help people recognize and navigate those shades of gray and perhaps stop trying to um, label themselves as, you know, purely good or that dichotomy of if I'm not purely good, then I'm evil. No, there's something in between and there's value in each person. There's self-acceptance that you can find. I think that's one of the huge things. Um, The other thing I've noticed um, with Western culture and how this can appeal is uh, you said in one of your books that storytelling is the way we make sense of the world. I believe that was your book on the stories of the yoga poses. And what Uh, who knows what what was in my cup that day. But anyways, go ahead. (laughs) But. I think one of the things that looking at the Gita does for a lot of modern Westerners is give them another way to look at telling their own story or the story of how they relate to the world, especially things like death, that in our culture, you know, death is kind of hidden away. You don't let the young kids see the dead bodies. It's something that's very sterile and it's viewed as um, perhaps in a way a, a defeat and a failing of modern medicine. And 
what this kind of different storytelling and approach helps us realize is, you know, in chapter two and chapter eight, there's this talk about death. And more people, especially with the aging population, find that to be a relief. So this, um, this different approach and this different focus lets them create new stories that uh, maybe they haven't heard before or they've tried to hear before but have been told aren't valid. Well, we have, um, so uh, one of the great philosophical, spiritual uh, legacies of ancient India comes from ascetic traditions, uh, most famously perhaps um, crystallizing the Upanishads and in, in, in the path of the Buddha, for example. And and what are the what are the three sites? Three sites that the Buddha sees famously that anybody who really has to deal with life needs to see is old age, sickness, and death. And how how institutionalized and how shielded are we from their institutions for all of these? You know, how many of us actually deal with the corpse of loved one? You know, unless we're visiting someone in the, in the hospital, many of us see illness in all of its technicolor glory, if you will. Like you know, and and without question, I think. I think um, we have a great deal of control over our circumstances in the current culture that we're in. And yet, you know, what really is within our control when it comes to when the Grim Reaper knocks? I mean, <laughs> yes. Right. So, so, so being confronted with death, being confronted with these, uh, with the ugliness of life and also the beauty of life. And, one of the things that really resonates is this idea that uh, it's all the, the Mahabharata in particular, that's an Indic thought in general, but the Mahabharata in particular, um, it's all about shades of gray. I mean, whose hands are clean? And, and, and uh, you know, you've got the great formidable Bhishma siding with Duryodhana, mm -hmm. and you've got, you know, the God incarnate, trickster extraordinaire. I mean, you, you, oh, what to do, what to do? Um, one of the things that dawned on me, I think, some 20 years ago when I first started, I discovered, if you can believe it, I discovered intro Hinduism uh, the day it began at the University of Toronto. I had uh, left my degree and I was working full time and I discovered it. And that sort of, that day is one of the days that sort of changed the course of my destiny in, in hindsight. But while I was sort of studying it sort of officially, as opposed to what I'd internalized coming from you know, a loose Indic home, if you will, is that not to crudely generalize, but I will nevertheless crudely generalize, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, Western modes of thought, particularly Abrahamic faiths, they can be more of a switch orientation where is it heaven? Is it hell? Are you saved? Are you damned? Is it good? Is it bad? And that's just, you know, human beings. I mean, all human beings everywhere have this wonderful left brain that wants to know, well, what is it? It wants to slice and dice. Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Um, but then Hinduism, to my mind, or, or Indic thought in general, offers more of a dial approach. Like, where are you in your karmic journey? Are you in one of your last lives, entire lifetimes? You have only a thousand years to go, or do you have two, two, two hundred thousand years to go? Or where are you? Are you just in your third um, uh, incarnation out of chimp kind? <laughs> Is that why there's so much flinging? So, so it's, it, it's just there's this there's this there's this consciousness of a dial, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so I think I think that can be. Um, and experience is teaching folks in a continuing studies context. Um, one of the comments I get, um, folks come up, particularly I'd say more uh, middle to older age folks, they would come up and say, you know, it's such a relief. You know, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. You know, when you present these items, maybe this, maybe you've all walked the earth before, maybe this, maybe this. And um, 
I think the very same elements of the Bhagavad Gita that make it so tricky for exegesis and so confounding to black and white thinking are the very same elements that make it so uh, richly um, 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 congruent with life. Like life is messy, life is textured. Right. Sure is. Yeah. So um, what are some of, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about it for two hours, but what are some of your favorite uh, gripping aspects or parts of the Gita? There are many, but um, one that really stands out is the beginning of chapter seven, Jnana Vignan Yoga. Uh, as I was living the verse, uh, that particular verse it starts out with, as I've translated it, and I've done two poet or two translations. One is um, what I'd call the more poetic, which is for especially Westerners that don't have much exposure to Indic terms or yogic terms or don't understand what a, a guna is or tatwa, trying to make it in that language. And then I had another more literal translation. But uh, as I was going through the more poetic one, in the verse, uh, under my complete protection, Practicing yoga with your mind, intent on me, O child, hear how to know me fully beyond doubt. And when I was living that verse, I thought to myself, I've never really gone through a day where I felt like I was under the divine's complete protection. Even having been raised Catholic with this idea of a benevolent being or Jesus watching out or Mother Mary watching out. I never had that feeling because um, I was also brought up in Catholicism. Yes, God protects you, but you have to be scared to death of him. Uh, but to have this idea of Krishna as being so invested in me and to personally be protecting and to even call me directly as child and that I can know him without doubt and relax into that. That was one of the most relaxed days of my life. And I found that transformative, that ability to trust and to just open up. Uh, so that was one. And then another one that really, well, section or chapter two, there were sections in chapter two that when my own mother was passing away, um, I referred to it quite often. And it became much less intellectual and more of this is how applicable it is to everybody. Um, talking about who someone really is, and by extension, my mother. You know, is she the body? No. Body has changed. She went through a long illness. The body changed. What is it in her that stayed permanent, that stayed true, and that I could connect to even beyond death. And that helped me think of, it's not just the final physical death at the end, but everything we go through in life, every change is a little bit of death. And how do we stay connected to what's real and true and authentic? And I found uh, that part of the Gita, just again, to have such a tremendously this was perhaps less of a comforting effect and more of an eye-opening effect. Like, oh yes, there really is something. There really is something that doesn't get cut or burnt or wet or dried. That's really us. And that no matter what happens to the physical body, it's there. And not only is it there now, uh, as Krishna says, there 
has never been a time when you nor I nor all these kings were not, and there will never be a time when we do not exist. That to me was hugely impactful. And again, uh, comforting. So in your perspective, is this translation, and by extension, I suppose the Gita in general, um, uh, who's it for? Is it folks who are interested in spiritual ideas? Is it folks who have a particular mm -hmm. theological bent? Is it for theists? Is it for those who uh, believe in reincarnation? Is it, you know, I, I'm not meaning to put words in your mouth, but the question is meant to be right. generative. So, so who's this for? Yes. Wow. Well, and this is why I had three books. <laughs> um, I was trying to make it applicable for a wide range of people. So the first book is actually the slimmest and it's hearing the song of your soul. And it's just the more poetic translation. And that was for mostly people in the West who'd had some encounter with the Gita, um, but found getting through all the, the different commentaries laborious. We'd heard that a lot while teaching. It's like, oh yes, but I just want to read it without having to kind of filter through all the commentary in between. So it was a pretty much a straight translation. And that way for somebody who was new to it, they could just kind of read through it. It's short, it's not intimidating. Um, and then also, perhaps paradoxically, it was for somebody who had a lot of experience with the Gita that just wanted to chant it and have everything organized in a way that they could just flip through and easily chant. The second one, I think, was more for Westerners with very little exposure to the Gita and its background material because it included some commentary, but it was... I think very much a Western kind of based commentary, like, uh, again, to help people understand what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, in the first chapter, that list of names can be so intimidating and so reminiscent, perhaps, of the Bible. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and who were these people? The idea was, how do we get folks to understand the emotional impact of the Gita and why it's still relevant? And then the third book was... Uh, think that's more intellectual and for people who want to either dive deep or have already started to dive deep it has the two translations side by side so you can see okay if um krishna mentions faith in the more poetic version what exact sanskrit word is he using for example shrad which has that connotation of, of faith that's informed by experience instead of just blind faith and uh and then the commentary for that was more of what do the particular words mean? How can they relate to Eastern or Western concepts? And even leaving some of the Sanskrit in so that if you're familiar with some of it, you know, Dharma, there's really no way to, as you say, literally translate the word Dharma. But if you already have an understanding of it, then it brings more of a nuance. So I was hoping to provide a wide range of accessibility and experience um, based on what the person needs at the time. What is your current relationship or usage of the Gita like? Uh, you've translated it, obviously you think about it and you, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you live it and imagine you teach it. So what is it currently, what do you currently do with the Gita? Well, one of the latest things I've done with the Gita is um, I do meet with clients one-on-one, -on -one, with people one-on-one. -on -one. And I found that sometimes what the people are going through is just so intense. It's hard to think of, you know, in a step-by-step -step structure. It, because I, I worked in Western medicine where it was, 
okay, find out the symptoms, make the diagnosis. Oh, you have the diagnosis. And then you do this, you give them this pill, you give them this label, you help them through this it's, with the it's insurance. Pro, it's protocol driven. It's, it's formulaic on some level. Right. Yeah. Um, and what I've started doing is um, with the Gita, I'll, we'll start off with, you know, the idea of first you're coming and that's actually, there's a pain and that pain you can look at either as something that's going to break you or like Arjun did as a gateway to self-exploration. And then I lay out some of the principles from each of the chapters and find that each person kind of resonates with different ideas in different chapters and says, you know, this is what I need to hear now. Wow. This is what's going to support me. And then when we find out a general idea, we look at uh, in each chapter, applicable verses, or even, you know, there are some techniques laid out in the Gita and how they can use that in their life. And uh, for me, it's helped because instead of feeling like I have to do something and I have to fix it, it's using the Gita to facilitate somebody's own self-healing, self-empowerment and uh those choices that lead them to just a better place in life and that's that's really how I mean, i'm trying to uh instead of making these sessions more about me and what i can do for the client it's showing them that somebody else has been through this before arjun and what he did and now you have the same ability you find what you need you make the choice and I'll support you in that choice. So that's uh, one of the key areas I'm I'm working with now. Would you say the utility of the Gita is something along the lines of psychotherapeutic or psychospiritual? Would you say utility mm -hmm. is pragmatic? Would you say the utility is for spiritual growth? Like I think it can encompass all that. Uh, for example, chapter three can be really useful for the pragmatics because it's all about what do I do? Okay, I have this problem. And now you've given me some reason in chapter two, some underlying philosophy, but now what do I do? And for people who are pragmatic and doers, we can look at, you know, chapter three, chapter four, even up through chapter six. Uh, for people who are more, uh, I don't want to say, uh, maybe more going through emotional stressors or feeling disconnected. I think that could be an emotional disconnection and they're looking for reconnection. I think in the middle section, chapters seven through 12. And for those who are more on a, a psycho-spiritual, as you said, I think that's a great word um, aspect of the journey, then I think the later chapters can help. But I think what's really great about the Gita is there's really something in it that can be applicable and one of the joys is showing different people how they can use it and make it work for them were there any particular um challenges in this this i should say these there are multiple in this translation project well one was <laughs> actually the gita came to my rescue because when i was starting to get things to what I felt was a place where I could present them to a publisher. And then to, uh, I didn't even really get rejections. It was just more, if you don't hear with from us within a certain period of time, we're not interested. And then the waiting and then the not hearing and then going, well, why am I, why am I spending time on this? What's the point? And remembering the Gita's message of, there's something you're meant to do. You do it, you do your best and you put it out there. And 
And that's what life is about. That's your duty. Whether people think it's, you know, not a worthwhile duty or shouldn't you be doing something to make more money kind of thing. Um, I found that that really helped me through the process. And uh, I'm sorry, I think I forgot the original question. What was that again? That, that's all right. The questions are always meant to be generative. And it's there's yeah. the, the, this is perfect to see where you was. It's always a, it's always um, it's always fun to see where the person ends up. Uh, so the right. question was along the lines of particular challenges that you may have faced ah, yes. in this process. Well, one challenge was to stay motivated in the face of what seemed like abject failure, which I wasn't used to in the publishing world. I was not used to that. Um, so that was one challenge. Um, and then I think other challenge, it was more about me than anything else is maintaining my belief and believing that it was worthy enough to carve out time for because it did take a lot of time. And at one point I even took months off from doing anything else and just wrote. And that was a bit of a challenge because then the brain kicks in. How are you going to survive? How are you going to eat? Uh, so I, I feel like it was in many ways a spiritual journey of surrender. And I have a really hard time surrendering. And it was just what I needed. And that was my biggest challenge, doing my best and saying, that's my best and letting it go. Well, the the... The, everyone has a particular um, uh, what's the word? Swabhava, right? So, what would you call it? Right. Well, how do you transit uh, the distinct nature? Everyone has a distinct mm -hmm. nature, and it seems that the Gita is like any great teacher. The Gita will meet you where you're at with your nature, and it has a nugget for you, and something will resonate with you because it's not evident to you because it's hard for you to let go. And so, this idea of surrendering yeah. and being safe is transformative, and then. For someone else, the idea that no, you need to pick up your bow and fight. Oh, I need to fight. Wow, yes. you're right. I have to fight. And so right. it's um, the 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 polyvalence is a feature, not a bug. It's it's really speaking to many of our of our dispositions collectively. I feel um, right. it's interesting that you had to adopt the you that in order to in order to fruitfully engage and bring to fruition this this project to translate the Gita, you needed to adopt the teachings therein to, to get you there. Well, I think that was wonderful because for me, it just reinforced. I think that helps my teaching because there are things I've taught before that I've had um, what Australians would call bolted on knowledge, like you memorize just enough to uh, spit it out for the people in front of you. And in, then if somebody asks you information about Information versus transformation, yeah. Right. And I think what's helped me having to do what you said is actually have to live it to get through it is now I can talk about living it because everyone's lived experience is going to be different, but at least it can show that it is possible to live it. And that, like you said, it will meet you where you are and carry you through no matter your background, no matter your age, no matter what you're going through, it can support you. So uh, in addition to whatever else you might like to say about the translation itself, and perhaps uh, perhaps it might be worthwhile to share a bit of an excerpt with people so they can get a taste. Um, sure. Also, um, in whatever particular order, also maybe say a word about how folks might be able to reach you. I mean, are they able to study with you? Perhaps. Yeah. I would love that. I do teach um, 
classes on the Gita throughout the year. We have an annual retreat that just had its 13th year. It's sold out again. Um, and we look at a chapter of the Gita every year. Uh, so it's got a few more years left to go. Um, but I also put some things up on YouTube and some discussions. You can find all that at welcomingdestiny.com. Uh, actually, in Sanskrit, if you're more familiar with that, it's dharmakshetrayoga.com. But under resources, there's a page called The Song of Your Soul, and you can click on that. And it's got things like um, a free chapter that you can download from the book and also an audio of me chanting that chapter. That way you get the idea of the rhythm. Um, and you also can contact me through that and whatever you might need. I'm, I'm always eager to work with people in a group setting, one-on-one, -on -one, or even through uh, teacher trainings across the country for this marvelous material. So we'll, we'll include those links in the podcast notes, uh, certainly. Um, now, do you want to give us a little bit of a taste of the translation? I'd love to. Um, and as I do this, I'd want, some people will know this and some people perhaps won't be as familiar, but there are a couple different of meters in the Gita. And uh, it's generally four lines of either eight beats, matras, or 11. And the way I've tried to distinguish that in my book, which I know not every book distinguishes that, is the the one the four lines of 11 beats are in italics. And that way, if you are chanting it out loud, you can switch from rhythm to rhythm and know exactly what to use. Um, but much, much of it is in the nushtu verse, which I've heard also called the warrior verse. And if you chant the Mahamrittan Jai Mantra, the Mahamrit can be chanted in this particular rhythm and meter. And I think as far as a section, um, one that I've heard that students find most helpful is from chapter six. Um, in chapter six, it's Dhyan Yoga, the yoga of meditation. And Arjun is really engaging in a dialogue with Krishna and saying, you know, what if I try and I fail? And I think for a lot of Western yoga practitioners, the way yoga has been presented to them, it's what if I can't get my body into those twisty bends? What if I can't sit for hours and meditate? What if I don't have hours to try to sit for meditation? Or if I make the hours, my feet fall asleep, or I find I'm thinking not very peaceful thoughts, then what? You know, is everything I've done a waste? And there's that there's that switch mentality again. Exactly. Logic one or zero. <laughs> right. Um and Krishna gives a very reassuring answer here. So I'll do just a few verses. Um, chapter six, I'll start with verse 37. And I'll chant it. There are different ways to chant this meter. And I realized that this is a way I learned at an ashram in northern India, chant this meter. So Arjun speaks. 
But what if one cannot control his mind, although he tries with faith? If he does not perfect himself, O Krishna, what will be his fate? Relinquishing heaven and earth for his failed quest, mighty Krishna, Will he vanish like a spent cloud without support from anything? This my question you should resolve completely as there is no one besides you who is able to remove this doubt, my dear Krishna. And then Krishna, he gives a longer answer, but we'll just do the first verse of his answer because it can have a, a night's nice impact. Krishna speaks. O oh, child, certainly there is not in this world nor the world to come destruction nor grief for the one who does what is good, oh, my son. And I found that people I've chanted this with, when they hear this, they go, oh. so if I'm trying, that means it's okay. That, and Krishna says this later in the Gita, even a little attempt at this is going to save you from great danger. So just the fact that I'm trying is going to bring me good, not just me good, but the world around me, and not just in this physical existence, but in whatever comes next. And I think also the fact, um, for those who know the Gita more fully, you know, Krishna and Arjun are relatively close in age, and Krishna keeps calling Arjun, oh, my son, oh, my child. And the way Krishna addresses Arjun really varies throughout the Gita and the way he's talking to him now, even though they're about the same age, um, is so comforting and just shows that physical age really has nothing to do with wisdom one can embody. And from a spiritual point of view, Krishna is much more advanced and we can find a teacher, we can find somebody that supports us and someone who's more like our peer rather than someone who sits untouchable on a high pedestal or off in the Himalayas or surrounded by hundreds of disciples that you can't even get through to. It's somebody who can be your intimate friend. Mm, lovely. Yeah. Is there anything else about the project uh, or the Gita or your work that you'd like to share before we close for today? It's a never-ending work, and that's okay, because we're all never-ending works in progress. Um, but I think one thing i just like to share, this is another little nugget from the Gita, is um, Krishna saying that the difference between him, someone who appears very spiritually advanced, and the difference between us as represented by Arjun isn't so big, Krishna says, biggest difference between you and I, Arjun, is just that I remember who I am and you forget. And this idea of there are many ways to remember ourselves, but to just remember that who we are authentically and to embrace that and to realize that that has value is something that will 
accelerate our spiritual growth tremendously. Just that self-acceptance and remembering that we are something beyond our wildest dreams. Beautiful. What a lovely thought to end on. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure as always. Always a pleasure. For those listening, we have been speaking with uh, Laura Atmadarshan Santoro on her brand new translation, translations indeed of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, embracing the song of your soul, uh, all of the relevant podcasts, all the relevant um, uh, links are provided in the podcast notes to find her and her work. Um, until next time, keep well, keep reading, keep listening, and yes. uh, keep contemplating uh, the mysteries of life and maybe even as expressed in the Bhagavad Gita. Take care.